Welcome to the Injured to Elite podcast with your host, Dr. David Meyer, sports physical therapist and mental performance coach. Dr. Dave is a former Major League Baseball rehab coordinator and has now integrated the mental side into physical rehabilitation. This podcast shares the many stories and strategies of those who have taken themselves from injured to elite. Head over to www.injuredtoelite.com to learn more about David and his recently published book, Injured to Elite. everybody, Dave back here with episode number 66 of the Injured to Elite podcast. I have such an amazing guest joining us today, and he will be our first orthopedic surgeon, or our first surgeon, to join the podcast, which is an elephant in the room guest because it's the title of this podcast is Injured to Elite. And orthopedic surgeons are kind of an integral, important role uh, piece to the puzzle when going from injured to elite. And so I'm really honored to bring in Dr. Philip Williams to the show, who actually crossed paths with me several times. The first time was at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, HSS, where he was completing his orthopedic residency. I was completing my sports physical therapy residency. We both shared uh, a common person that that helped us along the way, John Cavanaugh, who is an athletic trainer, physical therapist. So Dr. Williams and I will share the story. I'll, I won't spoil it because uh, I think it's really cool because then we cross paths through the ethers of the internet on uh, a clubhouse room and and uh, or on Instagram and a few different places there. And in, I was scheduled to meet with him and didn't realize until the last second that I was on a football field with him. So I'll share the story. Maybe we'll start with that. Uh, but you have a very special guest that you're going to be listening to today because I think it's really interesting how he is going and leaning fully into the digital side to empower those that he touches, whether they're medical students, pre-med students, patients, or the general public, because everybody wonders, what does a surgeon do? And I've been in the operating room and it was an amazing place. I had a high from it. And I, my uncle told me not to become an orthopedic surgeon. And in another lifetime, I would have loved it. I was in there with some really awesome people. And I'm sure Dr. Williams has an amazing vibe in there that I'd love to check out one of these days. Without further ado, let me bring Dr. Williams on and he'll share his background. And we're going to talk specifically in the area of empowering people with the knowledge, which what is more important than that? You might not be put on a pill or have a surgery, but you are going to go to Dr. Google. So we need more Dr. Williams out there that are sharing what they know. And he's breaking that ice. And I think it's amazing. He's got an amazing TikTok profile. Let's jump into this episode. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining your busy schedule. I appreciate it. It's awesome to have you here. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that great introduction and appreciate being reintroduced to you once again after all these years. I know you just alluded to that story back in the day, but it's great to uh, finally be reconnected and now have a professional connection as well um, yeah. after all these years. It's great. It's awesome. Um, so I see the, the different diplomas in the background. I'm going to introduce it, introduce them for you just briefly so people know your uh, your background. So you studied at Harvard for medical school, uh, and then went on to complete your orthopedic residency at HSS, 
probably one of the top resident sports or, or orthopedic residency out there. And then went on to go to Curlin and Job out in Los Angeles and complete your, your sports fellowship there. So, I mean, in terms of a resume, I don't think they really, they get much stronger than that in terms of your educational background and, and all that stuff. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I saw that you studied po- political science. I did that for a semester and you did that over at Yale and you ran track, which I didn't know until I looked that up. Yeah, that's quite a, quite a combo, I guess. I mean, I would say uh, going back to undergrad, I would have never thought I'd be a doctor. That's why I studied political science. I actually wanted to be a lawyer. And I studied political science because they had a lot of the sort of pre-law curriculum. So I studied a lot of constitutional law and stuff like that in undergrad, thinking I was going to become a lawyer. I was an intern at one of of the very prestigious law firms uh, in DC for a summer. So I was kind of on that track during undergrad. And then I actually ended up working on Wall Street right after college because I thought I worked for a couple of years and then go to law school after that. And so, so that was kind of my trajectory throughout undergrad and then right after undergrad as well. So I'm going to go back to that because I want, I want people to hear this story. So back in 2014, uh, we were covering the public school athletic league PSAL in Brooklyn, I believe it was during a football game, high school football game. And a kid went down and I was there behind you. You probably didn't even know I was there because I was just kind of trying to just sneak whatever experience I can get in there, part of my residency. And you ran on the field. There was a player down. And I remember this pretty vividly. You quickly looked at his lower extremity. I could tell that it was lower. I didn't know it was ankle even. And then I think it must have been like five seconds. You were pretty quiet. And I remember you kind of muttering it under your breath. You're like, yeah, it's out of place. And you just, I guess maybe I see you're smiling. Maybe you kind of even recall some of that. And I, I don't even know how you tractioned it you, you, or reduced it, but you put it back in there pretty quickly. And I said to myself, okay, there was my first uh, on-field dislocation. And I just saw somebody put that back into place. And I saw him in the clinic, actually. Uh, it wasn't when you were covering the clinic. I didn't treat him, but I saw him in the clinic, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Sherman's clinic or whatever. And uh, I cross paths with you again. So that's an unbelievable yeah. experience. But what goes through your mind? You run out there, you, you're resident still. Like You look like you did it 100 million times. How many times did you do it at that point? Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. Probably over 100, definitely, by that point. Because, uh, I mean, in residency, you, you definitely get thrown into different situations where you get progressive responsibility and have to react pretty quickly to some stuff, to different things. But in particular to that injury, for an ankle dislocation, and any dislocation for that matter, it's easier to put it back in place as soon as possible. Because what happens, as I'm sure you're aware, once you have it dislocated, the the muscles surrounding the joint starts to spasm, and that's when it gets very hard to put back into place. So I knew if I got to it right away, before the student even realizes it was out of place, you kind of give them a quick, like, okay, I'm going to pull on your ankle real quick. And before they know it, you pull on it real quickly. And that's the easiest time to put it back in. If it were left out of place for, you know, an hour by the time he got to the ER and things like that, they would have to put him to sleep. They would have to get him fully sedated. It would be a whole big affair. But on the field, if you see something out of place, you know, an orthopedic surgeon or any, uh, a lot of the 
personnel out there will know right away, just kind of just don't take any time, just put it right back in, right in place. And that's kind of the easiest time to do it. It makes you look like a hero. So I don't want to take you did uh, like any credit where it's not due, but uh, it's, it's a lot easier to do right when it happens. So that's pretty much what I was doing at that time. Selfish learning. Pause for a second from my <laughs> audience. Less common, of course, than shoulder and uh, some other joints. Yeah, right. In the on the ranking, how common is ankle, and what neurovascular stuff are you concerned about with ankle dislocation? Ankle is definitely a lot lower than shoulder dislocations, especially in football, like contact injuries, oh. upper extremity upper extremity contact injuries like that. As far as the ankle, I mean, you're worried about um, some of the uh, tibial nerve as well as right. uh, that's basically one of the more common common injuries there. But uh, as long as you get to it within a you know standard amount of time within the first few minutes, you're not going to have that many complications from a neurovascular compromise. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he's got to work on a lot of balance for the rest of his life. Plenty, right, of, uh, right. Pl- plenty of stability and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought that was really just an amazing experience in terms of seeing how quickly you acted. So just going back a little bit to when you made that decision to go from Wall Street into medicine, tell me a little bit about that. It, it's a, it's sort of a, a deep story, I would say. Um, when I started Wall Street, I was very, um, something bothered me about it. It wasn't that Wall Street itself bothered me about it. it. What bothered me was that it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the right thing to do because I actually, I actually was an intern at that firm the summer before I graduated college. And of course, that was a great time. It was a summer. I was in New York City. I was making good money. I was still in college. I was there for the summer. And it doesn't feel it doesn't feel real. It feels like, okay, this is a great job, but I'm going back to college in the fall. So, you know, if I don't like it that much, I still have school to look forward to. So I didn't really think much about it as like, this is my career. This is my job. This is what I'll be doing every day for the foreseeable future until I graduated and, and then I started the job. And that's when I was there every single day. And I was like, you know what, this is my life. And I don't, I don't think I really like the way this is going. I'm not necessarily a, a numbers heavy person. And that was really for a numbers heavy person because every day I was just tracking sh- spreadsheets in an Excel spreadsheet. And that's great for people who like tracking numbers, but I just did not like doing it. And I just realized that I, I needed a job that gave me some kind of control and some kind of ability to help people uh, dynamically and change people's lives on a daily basis. And I know you can do that with any profession, but I needed something that gave me hands-on control for that, of that. And um, I realized eventually that I wanted to be a, become a doctor and it actually occurred. It was, it was a, a revelation that occurred while I was visiting an aunt who was sick with cancer in a hospital. Uh, and it was like, you know, someone like rang a bell and kind of revealed what my future would be. And it was such an epiphany. And I told like my family that I wanted to become a doctor. I was very, very excited about it. Um, And it actually occurred at Cornell hospital, which is actually the hospital where hospital special surgery is. So it's like, it came full circle. I didn't, and that was way before I actually went to the residency. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I actually had the revelation that I wanted to become a doctor at that same hospital that I became a resident at, which is kind of a, a unique story. But, uh, you know, circling back yeah. to um, my decision to become a doctor, was it was kind of a revelation. And then uh, afterwards, it was kind of a, a tough road because I ended up quitting my job right away, which um, was probably not the smartest move. Um, and then I basically had to 
go back to school to take all my pre-med classes because I didn't take any pre-med classes undergrad. So, and that was kind of a, a tough pill to swallow because I just graduated from Yale, you know, you know, a very big, you know, elite school. And then I moved, I moved back home with my mom, had no job. Um, and all my bringing yeah. back memories, you're bringing back yeah, memories, right. doc. <laughs> yeah. So it was just a, a tough time, but eventually I was able to get back into school and then, uh, eventually got into medical school. So it was kind of a tough transition period that eventually worked itself out. Give me a year. Cause I, so in 2007, I graduated from SUNY Albany and I was pre-med. I had some courses I needed to still take, but the the market crashed and I was actually, I was retaking like physics and stuff around that time. Were you, was it a little before that? Uh, 2002, 2003, I think it was. Yeah. So it was before oh, that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was way, way before that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long journey. So, so what was, okay. Just getting into medical school like that is, I mean, you're putting content out helping those that are pursuing that. What was that like for you? How long did that take? Uh, so between the time I graduated college, so I graduated in 2002 and I started med school in 2005. So for those three years, I, I was only working honestly for like a couple months. Mm. So for those three years, I was working on getting into medical school. So it took me three years to get into medical school after I graduated college. So it was, uh, you know, you, you don't love numbers. How was some of the, the, the science that you had to take course wise? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. So as soon as I made that transition in my head that I wanted to become a doctor, you know, you, you, you get motivated even for things that you don't necessarily like. So I got into physics, I got into, you know, all these other, uh, science classes that I normally would not have enjoyed in, in undergrad if I felt like I was forced to take it. And I didn't necessarily have the motivation to become a doctor, but as soon as I had that kind of drive, I, you know, I, I started to enjoy all my classes. So it changed it kind of, really your experience in terms of like, yeah. you actually found some level of joy in, in, in some of that stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I had a purpose and I knew I couldn't fit, like I, I could not fail. So I was just like, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to make myself enjoy it and I'm, I'm going to do it. So kind of changed my whole outlook on everything. You have a special relationship with your aunt? She passed away, unfortunately. Uh, she had colon cancer. Um, but yeah, I was close with her and especially her sons, uh, her co- so my cousins, uh, very close to them. So, so I, I kind of hold that as kind of my special reason for medicine. So you have siblings yourself? Yeah, I'm the youngest of four. So I have two sisters and a brother. Gotcha. No one. So none of my siblings graduated college either. So it's kind of a um, like a, a, a tough, a different place to be in for me too. Uh, but my siblings all do very different things. They're very different from me, but very different, um, career, uh, careers right now. Based on where you went academically. I mean, if you, it essentially is like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this right. Based on the places you ended up at, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, I, I would liken it to a kid saying, I want to go to the NBA. Yeah. You know, so my goal when I was in elementary school, I, I told my parents, I said, I want to go to Yale, you know? Um, and I was very specific. I don't know why. I mean, I, I think I knew someone who went there. I, I heard of it, but it's, it's very similar to someone, a sports, you know, athlete who says, you know, I'm going to be an NFL player and you just work to doing it. So you chose Yale based on what, what, what was your interest in with Yale? I, I heard it was the best college at the time. You know, when I was growing up, I was like, Oh, I heard it's the number one college. Okay. So I want to go there. So it then became like almost a competition with myself to do whatever I had to do to get into Yale. And then 
once I did that and I wanted to go to medical school, I said, okay, I want to go to Harvard. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to minimize how hard it is, but I also want to kind of make an analogy to someone who says they want to go to the Olympics. Like, what do they do? They do everything that they need to do to, to make their body into that athlete that is an Olympian. So that's kind of what I did. I was just, I had a goal and kind of, um, wanted to work towards that. Dr. Williams, where did that come from? Good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. I just always, uh, have felt like I wanted to do something more and I wanted to get the best training wherever I went because I felt like I wanted to become a leader in some way. And I felt like if I could get to whatever top institution there was that could help train me to become the leader I want to be. But, you know, I mean, that's an excellent question. I don't, I would say my parents definitely instilled in me uh, a degree of accomplishment and pushing yourself towards your maximum ability. So that's probably the easiest answer for that. But even though you were the first, it sounds like the youngest sibling to go the college route, you got positive encouragement from like, there was a belief in you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think my siblings, they, they all have a uh, learning disabilities. So that definitely is a significant issue that held them back during school as well. So whether or not I had one, I'm not sure, but um, they definitely had documented you know, dyslexia that really made it difficult for them to uh, achieve, at least in the school realm. I mean, they are all, all kind of doing their own thing now that have been able to un- use their unique talents in a different way. But in the regimented school world, uh, it was hard for them to kind of accomplish the things that they needed to accomplish. Was there a moment or a challenge that you, I mean, it seems like I could imagine with the passion that you have being in Wall Street, I'd almost feel like it would feel for you to some ways, in some ways, how it would have probably felt for me being that I, I identified with kind of like being an underdog. I felt like, you know, I, I, I had the goal of, you know, the big leagues, whatever that was for me, it was baseball. And I was just going to, you know, as a short athlete, I was going to play college ball. I was going to do those things. And if I ended up in a situation where I was kind of maybe drinking the Kool-Aid, whatever you want to call it, you know, I've always had an aversion to that where I can't last long there. Um, so it definitely seems like that pushed you even further to, to do it the way you did it, um, and are doing it, but were there some challenges that, that hit you that, you had questions about whether it was pre-med days, med days, residency days, let the world know, like what was, what is a challenge you can expect where you can really question, like put your head on the pillow and be like, what's going to happen? I would say the biggest challenge, I mean, I had several challenges during residency. Residency is a challenging, challenging experience. And it's meant to be challenging because they want to make sure you can do this thing called surgery or be whatever medical specialty that you're after, uh, because you're going to be in high stake, high stress environments, taking care of patients in different situations. So I would say residency definitely was a very taxing, very stressful time for me. And I questioned whether or not I wanted to keep going, but I would say whenever I questioned that, I, I would tell myself, I didn't go to residency to become a resident. You know, that wasn't what my goal was. I wasn't trying to become another resident. I was trying to become an attending physician or a practicing physician. So um, I would just keep my eye on that prize. But I would say definitely residency was one of the most challenging periods of my life. 
you know, lack of sleep, lack of social life. There was a period of time where I'll never forget it. I worked seven straight weekends and, you know, didn't have a day off or set for 42 days, literally, or six, 42 days. So six weeks straight. Um, and, you know, and that was one of the hardest times I've ever had. Uh, but, you know, you get through it and then you work it out and you become stronger. You kind of realize that you can get through some hard periods in your life. And then that kind of hardens you to other challenges because there's always something else uh, on the horizon or sometimes you can't see it, but there's always something coming up that uh, you need to be stronger for. What were some of the things that kept you going through that or how did you, what was driving you towards that end destination? Uh, I mean, I, I was happy to have a girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, right. who, who stuck with me throughout the hard times. And um, yeah, that's probably one of the more important pieces is to have some kind of support structure, uh, whether it's a, a significant other, whether it's a hobby or some other outside force or interest that you can kind of keep with you throughout the whole process. So I'd say that would be it for me. Yeah. I mean, this podcast is is focused a lot on the mental side of injury and athletes going through their journeys. You, in many ways, are going through that same type of process. And we talk about these mental skills and strategies, but then you can't really compete much with like the sheer willpower or drive that, you know, it seems like you exude. And I think we now have gotten a little too caught up in like the specific strategy or skill where there's something you, you said an important word to me, purpose. Did you start to formulate an idea behind your, your higher calling even beyond just going into medicine at some point between pre-med and, and residency? I I would say between pre-med residency, that process, I kind of had my head down and I just wanted to, you know, first, you know, I just want to get, get into medical school. Okay. I just wanted to get into a good residency program. Okay. I just wanted to get into a good fellowship program. And then I just want to get a good job. So now that I have a job, now that's when I'm like, okay, what else should I do? Because I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't go to Yale and Harvard just to have a good job, which is nice, but I feel like there's more that needs to get done. And it's taken me a few years to kind of settle down into my job and settle down into my practice. And now I'm kind of looking for the next thing at this point. So I felt like I've put my time in, in terms of getting the education that I needed, getting the training I needed. And now it's time to kind of spread my wings a little bit and see what all this investment can really buy me in terms of um, contributing to the world somehow. I think it's tough for people to imagine, even a professional athlete, most of their careers at the professional level are a few years, if they're lucky. You're you're talking about 2005 when you started at Harvard, right? Right. We're talking about going on two decades of really being pushed to the point, at least academically, and I know it's beyond that, but we know academically, being pushed to a point that most people would never dream of being pushed to. So there's this level of perseverance and patience and something I've observed in physicians, specifically physicians and and higher education, especially, you know, any doctoral degrees, there's this marriage of pragmatism with also that level of, you know, willpower, very pragmatic, very practical. Like my head is always in the clouds and I'm talking to somebody such as yourself and I'm like, yeah, 
that's a that's right. Focus on the present step. Do what you can to get into Harvard. Do what you can to get into the residency and match. Do what you can. And that could be a lot for people just to to work so focused while still feeling so much passion and purpose. I'm curious if we can unpack like how you're able to kind of spread the wings, but also pragmatically, even on your TikTok page, like it's pretty, it's pretty awesome how you've built that up and very relatable content. Can you share any, any, any wisdom there? As far as kind of the dichotomy between, you know, trying to find your passion, but not quite being at that stage yet, you know, it's all about kind of enjoying the process at the same time. Now I, I kind of, mentioned how hard residency was, how it was the hardest period of my life. I don't want to take away the fact that it was also some of, I had some of the most engaging and awesome experiences at the same time also, like that I won't forget, made friends that I won't ever uh, forget either. So there definitely, definitely was huge benefits to struggling out through residency with a you know set of other residents who are now kind of people who shared in your struggle. So what I'm saying is, if you kind of learn to enjoy the process too, you don't necessarily feel overwhelmed by, you know, I need to find my passion. I need to go uh, do all this. I've always interests. So you kind of rein yourself in while you're at that step by trying to find ways to enjoy that process. Like I loved medical school, actually. I, I loved everything I took. I was really interested in um, every subject in medical school. So I wasn't like, I can't wait to become a doctor. Of course I wanted to become a doctor, but I also enjoyed just being a student in medical school at the same time. Uh, Can we briefly just talk about a little bit why orthopedic surgery and sports medicine? I was undecided throughout medical school in terms of what I wanted to be. Uh, I'm a pretty indecisive person with with some things. (laughs) Really? So yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of going around to different specialties in terms of what I wanted to do. But what I realized was with orthopedic surgeons, a lot of the patients loved their doctor and that was more so than any other field that I saw. Like the patients were happy, the ones that had surgery and, you know, they fixed their knee, they fixed their shoulder. They had no pain. They were kind of living a pain-free life. And they're like, you know, I love my doctor. I love my life again. And the orthopedic surgeons generally seemed happy and they love what they were doing and they enjoyed their life. And I was like, wait, this is a medical field where you fix people, they get better. They play their sports again. They play with their kids again or whatever. And the doctors are happy too. Like it's a win-win combination here. That pretty much sealed the deal for me. It was kind of the interaction between the patients and the doctors and the doctors enjoying their life. That was uh, unique to me. And that drew me towards the field of orthopedics. And then as far as sports in general, sports medicine, you know, like a lot of folks in our profession, I was a former athlete, but I think more than that, what I liked about sports is that you can really tailor the procedure or your treatment to the particular athlete. It's very individualized. You know, you you may treat someone's ACL a little bit differently if they were 35 and a weekend warrior than someone who is a 18 year old college recruit for football D1. So you change kind of the procedure, you change the rehab protocol somewhat. Uh, So I like that individual aspect of sports medicine. I just like being able to get people active again. So uh, I think sports medicine kind of lends itself to that specifically. And um, that's what I've been enjoying about it. That's awesome. So, you know, a lot of us physical therapists who are super judgy of all of you, and, you know, we have our opinions of why didn't the doctor say this or try this or do that? What would you want the PT or the rehab clinicians 
or even other physicians to know in terms of like, when you have the athlete on your table, like what goes through your mind? So first off, I know the patient's history, as I'm sure the PT knows as well, but you, you know the patient's motivation. Why do they want to get the surgery? Because a lot of what I do is not necessarily life or death. It's for function. It's for uh, quality of life. So you know, when I'm with a patient or with when I'm in the OR, I'm thinking about the patient's life. Like, what are they trying to get back to doing? And uh, what are their motivations? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with their age, their activity level, their sport status, and and just their station in life. So it's just kind of knowing the patient and knowing their history is kind of what I take to the table every time I'm operating. One of my chapters in my book, the the title was Conversations with Professionals, because I felt like patients are not equipped with the right skills to have a productive conversation with the physician. They don't know what to ask for, what to look for, to ask them based on their experiences. What would you tell, let's take a small town somewhere in in the States where maybe they don't have somebody with uh, an advanced fellowship even in sports medicine. And we, we would hope that they're still getting the same experience that you'd provide. What are some things the the patient, the client, the athlete, I don't really love the word patient, can bring to that physician to empower them with the right decisions? Maybe it's a graft choice or whatever. So if I were a patient or a client talking to a doctor about a medical procedure that I do not understand fully or I don't have all the fully, full information, I would ask the doctor, what would you do in my situation? Because I mean, that immediately it personalizes it for the doctor and makes the doctor think, you know what, I'm going to take this as I would do. I mean, for me, I, I usually tell patients like what I really think they should get done. And I want, I leave it open for them to make a decision somewhat, but if I can, if I see they they really don't have a good sense of what direction they should go in, I kind of nudge them in the direction I think they should go in. If I can do one of two things equally well, and I think they have a good outcome, I kind of let them make that decision. But if I know there really is one good decision to make, I, I pretty much steer them in that direction. But the easiest way to do it is to literally ask the doctor, what would you do in my situation? Yeah. And and that usually prompts them to say, you know what? I would do X, Y, Z. I cringe and I smile when you say this because something that as a PT I struggle with sometimes is when I stop and think, I'm like, I never had an ACL reconstruction. I never had surgery there. I'm like, I don't really know what the heck this person's feeling. I have a lot of reps in, but I don't really know. And I get a little superstitious, but I'm curious, like- how do you like yeah. what does that feel like for you? Do you like when they ask you that? Like, does that open up a window of like, it seems like you'd be able to shoot into it, but no, because you know, if, if someone asked me what I would do if someone was my age and needed an ACL, what I would do in my situation if I needed an ACL, I would tell them, you know, I'd want a quad ACL reconstruction. I would tell them that's what I would want. I mean, that's what I would want for myself. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have definitely okay. my own preferences. And I let them know that's what I would do. That's what I tell a family member. Or you know, another question is, what would you tell a family member? What would you, if this is your dad or this is your son? What would you right. do for your son? So I think that's great advice. That's just my personality. It's my kind of personal take on it. Um, I think it kind of helps to personalize the decision making process. So I want to go into that for a second. Uh, a quad graft. So that was still kind of like not newer. I knew they were doing it, but they were not talking too much about it in 2014 when I was at HSS. Yeah. Quad grafts, autologous. Yeah, I mean, me personally, I do that. I do them quite a bit. I would say my autograft practice is practice is fifty percent 
or it's more almost 75% quad and uh, 25% patella uh, BTB. It wasn't like that when I started my practice, but over the years, um, I've seen kind of the great results and kind of great post-op outcomes for my patients with the quad ACLs. For the uh, the non-bone uh, part of the graft, what how is it fixated? Uh, it's suspended on the femur. Gotcha. So, so suspensory but, but But really for my football players, kind of high level competitive athletes, college pros, I still do BTB. I think one thing that a lot of people out there don't realize about ACL reconstructions is a BTB reconstruction and and rehab process is painful and difficult. I think people think like, oh, it's going to be smooth sailing. I don't think people realize the symptoms that they might feel when they get it. I think that's one of those underrepresented areas. We don't talk about enough of like what to expect after that, even if the outcomes are solid. So that kind of segues into a little bit of the mental side. I'm just really genuinely curious what you've observed on your side as a physician, what your patients and and athletes are going through mentally, preparing for surgery, non-operative treatment, and after surgery. So I would say, yeah, we can break it up between pre-op, like peri-op, and post-op. So I would say pre-operatively, it is, and I think we may have discussed it previously, is kind of the stages of denial for a lot of uh, patients, especially the very high demand, high competitive athletes. It is accepting the injury. Um, you know, I could take ACL yes. specifically. Sometimes the, the folks that I see, since they're high school athletes, they come in with their parents and it's also getting their parents on board too. Like I've had football players who come in and I, I pretty much assume that they already know it's their ACL is torn based on what their athletic trainer told them, but they still are very surprised to hear it when I tell them. And when I show them on the MRI, because I I like showing the images directly to the patient as well. And many times it's it's the parents that have to really kind of accept it as well, because a lot of these parents, a lot of their dreams are riding on their son and daughters too. So uh, I think a lot of that pre-surgical discussion has counseling. to counseling <laughs> counsel. Yeah. Family counseling. counseling. It yeah. It's family counseling prior to surgery. So, uh, just making them understand what the injury is and having them accepted and knowing that there is a good path forward. Do you, do you target your conversation at the parent a little bit there? Like, do you, do you count? Like, how do you count? Like, cause for me, yeah. I actually, I really sometimes get irritated when the parent is overstepping and I'm like, I want to talk to your daughter or your son. And but I know at the same time, I have to address this with the parent. And so I try and like give the, the patient the time first, and then I turn my attention to the parent and I bring it together. But I find it to be very difficult. A lot of times the athlete will get frustrated. My parent is like super worried, but the parent doesn't realize that the reason they're getting frustrated is because it makes them question if they're going to be okay. And there's underlying lack of confidence they're feeling from the parent. And right. Sometimes the parent needs a boost of confidence, but I'm curious, like, how do you do that in your short time you have with them? Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's not easy. It's difficult. Yeah. I don't think I have any magic cure for that either. Sure. 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 Uh, Definitely try to make them understand that we will get through this. There is a well, um, a good procedure that can fix their problem, fix their ACL. And it's a process. You have to get their expectations 
under control very uh, very quickly in that first visit when you were deciding to operate on them. Just basically know, let them know that this is a process. Surgery is one thing, but getting through surgery is one hurdle. But then the biggest hurdle is the post-operative rehab uh, and kind of setting those expectations early. It seems like there's a piece of authenticity that you really put into your work. And I try and do the same thing. And I know earlier in my career, I think sometimes my authenticity might've came off the wrong way, people not coming back. And I would be like, ah, oh, maybe I should just tell them what they want to hear. But uh, it seems like you and I kind of both can connect on that piece of just putting our, our authentic selves out there and telling people like we believe they should be told. So I, I hope more people can follow suit with that. Yeah. I mean, I would say my... Uh... The prime example of me kind of telling pe- people what they don't want to hear is for a lot of knee issues like patellofemoral syndrome, early knee arthritis, uh, for obese, overweight people, weight loss is one of the best ways to prevent their knee pain. And for a while, I would just tell patients, you know what, weight loss is definitely one of the big things that will help your knee, regardless of what therapeutics or interventions I could give you. And many times it, it, it was rubbing folks the wrong way. Uh, you know, I'd get a lot of kind of nasty reviews about that. But then what I realized that I have to kind of temper it in a different way. And so instead of saying you need to lose weight, uh, you need to do this, I would just say, you know what, each pound you lose is literally five to nine pounds off of your knee because your knee experiences five to nine times your body weight uh, every time you walk down the stairs and do other activities. So I, I just tell them in a very positive way. I say, look, if you lose one pound, that's five to nine pounds less on your knee, and that's going to feel so much better. And making that shift has seriously made a lot of patients feel a lot better about being motivated to get to a more ideal weight that would help their problems. So It's an amazing way to bridge that conversation. What do you think really was the, what connects differently there when you tell them that? My fault was that I was kind of framing it almost like a negative way, like, oh, you're you're overweight and that's your problem. And, and now I'm saying, you know what? You have agency over this. You can help control this. I know it's not easy. And I tell them, I say, I know it's not easy. And I don't want you to be upset about this, but I'm trying to help you. And this, I guarantee, will help your knee pain. And so I think spinning it in a way like, you know what? This is one way you can help control your knee pain. I know it's not easy, but this is definitely going to help you. I think that definitely changed their uh, perception of it. And empowers them. I think that's an important thing. Yeah, empowers yeah. them. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, talk about return to play a little bit of, in terms of, I, I know you do a lot of shoulder and knee surgery. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Take a, take an ACL. We'll just use that. Um, are there any specific criteria you look at mentally or physically in your athlete or your client, whoever they are that are really important things or benchmarks for you as a physician? Well, I mean, the easiest stuff is the first kind of post-operative visit is just getting the range of motion back. But even more baseline than that is not being afraid of the knee because up until their whole life, they were playing their sport and their knee or whatever body part never failed them. And for the first time, their knee failed them. And that's kind of a theme throughout the whole post-operative course is reacquaint yourself with the knee and reacquaint yourself that the knee is not going to fail you. But the first visit, many times I can tell who's going to need more coaxing is the patient who is barely moving their knee is they're not putting any weight on their knee. And uh, I can tell when I have them go onto the table that they can barely get their knee up or they get their leg up and their, you know, their parent or their significant other is helping them move their leg. So at that first visit, I say, you know what, you need to move your knee. You need to touch the ground, you need to 
get it moving. It's not going to fall apart on you. You need to start kind of reacquainting yourself with the knee. So I'd say the first visit is more is more like getting himself reacquainted back to their actual knee and how it moves. And then subsequently, I have like, like a six-week visit where I aim to get full range of motion by, back by then, definitely. And then subsequently, I have other visits a couple months later. I usually start jogging about three to four months, depending on their range of motion and strength. And then from then on, I kind of work on more of the agility and sports specific stuff after four or five months. And then basically from six months to nine months is when I kind of make sure that they pull out all the stops and really try to put themselves, put themselves to the paces so that by the time nine months comes around, which is pretty much my earliest time that I would return a patient to their sport. By the time the nine month mark comes around, pretty much getting ready to do their uh, return to sport testing and getting them back into their sport. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how you mentioned that about the fear, because I feel like as PTs, we might not serve that idea the best always because they come into the clinic and we tell them to leave being careful. And something I observed was as I was telling people to be more careful, they would fall more. And I made this shift of being very careful with my language around the caution. Of course, sometimes giving people modifications and, and restrictions, but I realized they can feel that apprehension I would have, but it seemed always like they would see the the surgeon, the surgeon a lot of times would want to push. And so it, it, there is a little bit of that disconnect. I think we, we should do a better job in the rehab setting of being encouraging and, and like you did with the weight loss of the five to seven, you know, increase of, of right. load on the knee for every pound. I think we should reframe it a little bit of not just being so cautious, but just building the confidence back up. I mean, I understand the caution on the, you know, physical therapy side of things and other practitioners, because as a surgeon, if I did the surgery, I know exactly what I did. So I know exactly where I did right. things. I know exactly kind of uh, what can be tolerated, what can't. And also if I do something that really does cause a detrimental side effect, I can fix it. And it's my fault, you know, I, you know, God forbid that's, that happens and it doesn't usually happen, but right. it, I think surgeons definitely have a higher capacity to be more aggressive with things because we're the ones who actually did the surgery and we're the, and we are confident yeah. that if something goes wrong, which we don't think it will, we can fix it also. But as a physical therapist, you don't, you don't want to break something that someone else fixed. So I understand where that that's comes a from. Good point. I guess when I work for the Cardinals and I was working a little closer with the team doctors, I did feel a little more confidence of pushing things. But when not, when you're out in the community at a clinic, it can feel that way. Like, I don't yeah, know this exactly. position from a home exactly. wall. Yeah. It does feel yeah. that way. I think this is more important. Right. You know, I think it's important to, to, to meet who you're working with. I know it's not always possible, but that bridges us to social media. Yeah. And being able to see who operates, I think, is like really important seeing the physician's personality, seeing the physician's background outside of surgery. Like I think that does build trust and rapport. So let's, let's shock the, the medical world and tell them about your TikToks and how, you know, you're kind of, you, you are kind of going outside the box with that as a, an orthopedic surgeon. So share that with the world. Tell them how you see Yeah. I mean, I would say I never really set out to do anything different with TikTok specifically, which I recently started doing probably within the last couple of months, like a month or two, really. Um, but um, what I found that connects with more people is just being genuine. Uh, because a lot of uh, 
a lot of what I've been doing on social media prior to this have, have been like, oh, you know, this is a perfectly taken shot of me doing surgery or something, you know, or, or something, um, you know, me and my family or something, you know, showing. I wouldn't want to be in the operating room if you were trying to get that. And you're like, hold on, hold on. We, we got to get, get the graph. No, again. Yeah, no it, it's, it's just like, uh, you know, sometimes you just, uh, I, I feel like it's, it can be scripted in terms of what I do in my professional life. Okay. This is what I'm doing in the office. But I think yeah. what I've shifted to doing is just say like what I feel and, and, and kind of what I experience as a doctor, what I um, hope for, for patients or just, you know, whatever I'm thinking at the time. And what I realize more is that there's benefit in hearing from what a doctor thinks about a topic in general, that there's value in showing you what I do without the frills, without the, you know, the production quality, I would say. So I think that's kind of what I'm doing more uh, on TikTok is kind of giving you behind the scenes, but kind of giving my personal take on things. And uh, just me as a person, I just have not necessarily unwrapped the veil as much as I have been uh, lately on TikTok. So I think that, that I think that kind of connects more because I'm it's not just me as a surgeon, it's me as a person too. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, your your Instagram handle is Philip Williams MD on TikTok? Same thing on TikTok, yeah. My sense going through your videos is it's very engaging. Like I'm quickly getting a sense of this was his the day in his life and it, it captured the moment well. A few stand out in my mind. And, you know, just disclaimer, it, it might evoke a, a response. Yeah. So the one you put on, you probably know the one I'm going to talk about, the one with the the hand amputation or the wrist yeah. amputation. Yeah. To be honest, like I didn't know how often that was happening, but I'm like, oh, I know who this physician is. And I know that that's been a discussion with blood clots and things with, with the pandemic. And I'm like, oh no, but he's in there doing that. So yeah, it, it creates a quick engagement. And the interesting thing about that was I really just did that because a couple of things were happening. I was, so that was, I was on call and I got called back to the hospital to do that as an emergency. And it was, it was made out of frustration, honestly. And it came from a place of frustration and like just okay. sadness. And it's been, a, it was, it, it was a controversial video. Um, you know, a lot of people have comments on other one side or the other uh, about the video and about what it says. So, and that it wasn't meant, to, it was, it was meant more as like, you know, I'm just kind of frustrated and sad about how things have ended up. And I expressed it in a way where I didn't really hold anything back. I took it in one take and I kind of let it fly. And I wasn't expecting it to be received in any way. I didn't think anyone would watch it. Honestly, I kind of made it for myself because, you know, I had to amputate a hand and I've never had to do that. Um, because think about, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, my job is to restore function to people's limbs. And that fell completely contra contrary to what I do. I mean, yeah, we amputate body parts here and there once in a while, but that's not something we do normally. So the fact that I had to amputate someone's hand in an emergency setting, you know, because of something that could possibly have been prevented maybe at this stage in the pandemic really got, got me in a, in, a, in a very visceral way. You know, I, I felt bad for, I, I felt sad for the whole situation and I just wanted to kind of express that. So it, and it, it was one of the most gruesome, it was very gruesome for me to have to do something like that. Like it's, I'm a surgeon, but I still don't like doing something like that. So it was, it hit me on a lot of levels and 
Um, I think I, ex- I expressed that on the video. That I think that's what connected to a lot of people that I was just expressing my kind of frustration. And I don't think doctors do that. You know, um, I don't think doctors necessarily come out and say how they feel about things. And, you know, the public, I think, should would benefit hearing from doctors more about kind of what we feel and what we're looking at and what we're doing, not necessarily with a particular disease, but like just kind of what we talk about and how we feel about things. I think there is some benefit in that, in my opinion. Well, research backs up what you're saying because a few guests back, Yale Common Connection with you, wrote a book called Unwinding Anxiety. He's a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Judd Brewer, Judson Brewer. And Dr. Judd Brewer has did a lot of research at Yale on mindfulness and also on burnout amongst physicians. And his research integrated uh, a digital therapeutic using mindfulness for physicians and medical students, residents and found that there was a crazy small number needed to treat to decrease generalized anxiety in these physicians or medical students or combination thereof. And the areas that he found high on the Maslow, the Maslow burnout inventory in physicians was, was callousness. Mm-hmm. And there was one other category, uh, uh, emotional exhaustion. And what you're talking about I can only imagine doing a thousand hand amputations, how somebody could feel not being able to use a channel like TikTok to to post that out there. Um, But I think what you're saying ties perfectly into that in terms of the old generation of orthopedists, they, they do seem very callous. They don't seem as warm around conversations like you and I are having. I feel a warmth about the conversation we're having in terms of collaboration, in terms of understanding one another's perspective. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's a beautiful thing that you can go out there and put that out into the world and just share your vibe with with the world. And just think that too many people are experts without being in the operating room. Too many people are, are medical experts in the last two years that never took biology in high school, let alone college. And, but I think that's what you're doing, right? You are bringing your level of evidence to the world through TikTok, through social media. And it scares me that people are still afraid of doing that or institutions. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think it's more so institutions. It's more so the tradition, Um, you know, speaking about medicine in general, you know, we're not necessarily supposed to be, expressive like that. We're supposed to speak in very medical uh, terminology. You're supposed to be very sterile about a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, I I, I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to be real about stuff. Um, And, and, you know, I think I've fallen the victim myself to kind of falling in line. And now I'm just like, you know what, I'm just going to tell people what I'm thinking and give them advice that I think is helpful. And if they like that, that's great. If they don't like it, they can move on. But I'll just say kind of what I think uh, should be happening, in my opinion. What would you tell people out there in the medical field that are starting social media accounts, businesses that get their first bad, not bad press, but their first hater like you got on that video, it sounds like, what would you tell them? You survive after it? Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, as, as far as if you look at the comments I got from that video, I'd say, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, hate what I put on that video. but you know, I, I think the video was more for myself in terms of um, expressing myself. So I would just tell people, 
as long as you get benefit from expressing yourself, if you have a business, if you have a brand, if yeah. you are putting value out there that you think that there is someone who's going to uh, benefit from it, then that's all that matters. You know, if I, I made that video and that, if that video benefited one person, I think that's all the, yeah. the best. I mean, that's uh, a big bonus, but I think there's definitely going to be someone who uh, denigrates you, who has negative comments, who uh, is going to try to knock you down several pegs, but uh, you should always be humble, but, you know, I think always speak your own truth. And yeah, I mean, if you feel like you're getting um, criticized for that, then, you know, there's something wrong with that person, in my, in my opinion, and that, that, that person has to do other soul searching, but you should not have to necessarily feel the need to acquiesce to every negative comment that someone gives towards you and, and aims towards you. So just kind of speak your own truth and keep going with it. I think speak your own truth really resonates with me as the theme of of what I'm hearing from you and being authentic and whether that's when you're working with a physician yourself and asking them be real with me and tell me what you would do in the situation or when you're building your account up on on social media as a medical practitioner or not and just the most important fan you have is you so if you can't connect with yourself on that and if you're not connecting with with what you're doing in that regard, then maybe you should question your intentions with what you're doing. Definitely go check out, if you need somebody to look up to, check out Dr. Williams' TikTok and Instagram and get a feel for what I'm talking about because there is a vibe in the videos. Like It brought me back to being in the OR with Dr. William, Dr. Riley Williams, actually. I, it kind of, it was kind of an interesting experience being in there with him because he was like really just laid back and he was having fun talking about everything pertinent to the case, but also enjoying that process. And it was just a sense of relief I got. And I, I, I hear that in you. So, uh, all right, share with everybody out there what to expect in your future. What are they gonna? What's some of the realness they're gonna be getting from you going forward? Uh, I can't predict the future. I mean, I would say I'm just trying to express myself and be uh, of value. Uh, I'm trying to be someone who is of value to uh, my patients, but of value to society at, at large. And uh, I think one of the big revolutions now—it's been going on for a while—and I would say I'm kind of late to the game—is the digital social uh, media, digital medicine side of things. I think that's kind of where my focus has been over the past couple of years, but I think uh, even more so now it's been accelerating. So I would put my kind of value in that, and hopefully over the next months and years, I can provide some kind of um, um, lasting impression in that aspect of things. Well, I'm really enthralled to see with the work ethic you have with Harvard, with HSS, with now your work as an orthopedic surgeon in practice and and everything you've done and how you're applying that to building your social media and getting out to the world. I think people better be ready to to see some some authenticity and see what it's like behind behind the the lab coat and what it's like there. So, uh, I'm excited. I know in six months to a year, I'm going to be looking and being like, I had him on my podcast. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on. And if I had a dream orthopedic surgeon that can come on injured to elite and talk about everything that you just did, you are that person. Um, so that's, that's, really yeah, that's, that's really great. Thanks. That's generous for you to say, I uh, appreciate you inviting me 
and uh, coming on here. It's been great having this conversation and kind of reminiscing about our past. And yeah, I'll never forget uh, ankle <laughs> dislocation, Doctor Philip Williams. You know, we'll see if I get any in the in the clinic, but I'll give you I'll give you a call for some don't, guidance. No, don't I call. Do, just but, just uh, put it back so in. <laughs> don't call. Just put it back in. <laughs> just put it back in. <laughs> then call. Call after. Thank you so much for coming, and uh, I'll let you get back to to work. I'm sure you got plenty on the agenda. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks.